Welcome to Moving the Needle, where we highlight innovators doing needle-moving to create generational wealth and strengthen America's inclusive competitiveness. We're excited to bring you this episode, and we couldn't do it without the support of our sponsors. Live Oak Bank is on a mission to be America's small business bank and has the privilege of helping thousands of passionate, driven entrepreneurs turn their dreams into reality. These small business owners aren't in it for the fortune or the fame. They're in it to make a difference, just like Live Oak. As the top SBA 7A lender in the nation, Live Oak works tirelessly to treat every customer like they are the only customer. Going above and beyond is simply how Live Oak operates. They strive to deliver an experience different than what you typically expect from a bank. Their customers remain at the center of everything. You can learn more at liveoakbank.com. All right, let's get to the show. We really have to be involved and engaged in the conversations through our professional organizations and not simply sit quietly now that we are at the table, but we need to be involved in setting the agenda and framing the resources that support the agenda. And we don't see the evidence that we're changing the needle, no pun intended, then we are doing something wrong. Welcome to Moving the Needle, a fresh new podcast that explores how social innovators and problem solvers are doing transformative work in cities and rural communities to create pathways for generational wealth creation. This is Jonathan Hollifield. And I'm Christopher Gergen. As your co-hosts, we're here to lift up solutions that are giving us hope and can light the way for policymakers, community leaders, philanthropists, private investors, and engaged citizens who care about equity and economic impact. So Jonathan, as you well know, one of the greatest opportunities to improve economic mobility and generate wealth is quality education. Historically, black colleges and universities, commonly known as HBCUs, many of which were established in the mid to late 1800s, are a primary source of this quality education. But simply put, there is no viable path to shared US prosperity without ever greater contributions from America's HBCUs. Not only are they national treasures, but HBCUs are also national assets, worthy of investment, providing returns to our nation that cannot be replicated or replaced. And today we had the chance to talk to the chancellor of one of our HBCUs, North Carolina A&T State University's Chancellor Harold Martin. Indeed, Christopher. You know, I met Chancellor Martin a few years ago. At the time, I was executive director of the White House Initiative on HBCU. I was particularly taken by Chancellor Martin's incisive questions and inquiries about sustained federal strategy and investment and opportunities for HBCU to compete for top federal opportunities. You know, we really connected on that point, which really strengthened my resolve to create the first federal HBCU competitiveness strategy. Chancellor Martin's personal story 
is not uncommon among those who came of age during the heady days of the civil rights movement. While his parents didn't have an opportunity to go to college, they made sure that their children did. And make no mistake, they expected them to do well, and they did. I grew up in that era before integration and just on the cusp of integration beginning to occur. And so I could say to you that I had some of the most demanding black teachers you'll find anywhere. I focused on discipline, but aspirational preparation to go to college. Uh, and those teachers had very clear and regular phrases that were clear for us. Failure was not an option. Being the best you could be was always clear. I had to ultimately make the decision to attend North Carolina ENT where an older brother and older sister were already enrolled as well. But really was a defining moment for me personally. So Chancellor Martin ran with his education opportunity, earning his bachelor's and master's at North Carolina A&T, then his PhD in electrical engineering at Virginia Tech. And even though it was long post-integration by then, he noticed significant inequities still. In my experiences in the corporate sector, I saw very few African-Americans in key roles and responsibilities. Uh, I was the only PhD student of color in my PhD experiences at Virginia Tech in all of engineering at that time. It became very clear to me that something different needed to occur uh, if we were going to make a difference in producing the workforce uh, that the nation needed to continue to be successful. I observed that even as a young PhD student at that time. So when I began my career, and in some ways reluctantly in higher education, again, I still had desires to potentially go into the corporate sector, I ultimately settled into focusing on a career in higher education. And I entered my career as a young professional, as an assistant professor in electrical engineering here at North Carolina ENT. At that time, many predominantly white institutions were beginning to focus on recruiting minority students into their colleges of engineering with big corporate support. Uh, the big oral companies, Exxon, uh, BP America, and others, IBM, uh, technology companies, Intel, were gifting large corporate gifts to predominantly white institutions to foster building, growing focus on enhancing their minority engineering programs. That began to have direct impact on HBCUs uh, and their ability to, again, sustain their own enrollment in engineering. And I began to observe that as a young faculty member. And so as I began to advanced in my career uh, into my first administrative role as chair of electrical engineering and subsequently dean of engineering here at ENT, we made a tough decision to reach out to those same corporate entities because our enrollment in engineering was declining. The Virginia Techs and NC States and Georgia Techs in our region were aggressively building minority engineering programs and skimming the brightest students into their colleges of engineering 
having direct impact on HBCUs. So we made a decision to go out to those corporate entities uh, in my tenure as Dean of Engineering and say to those corporate entities, we have very significant commitment to building strong engineering programs at North Carolina ENT. And we redirected a host of those corporate dollars from some of those same organizations into our College of Engineering uh, at that time. So we began to direct uh, those growing corporate gifts that we were aggressively pursuing. And I was leading those discussions, traveling to many of those corporate entities, requesting their investments in our programs. So we did two things. One, uh, we encouraged our university administration to provide for our College of Engineering an opportunity to set some minimum admissions criteria so that we could go out and identify better prepared academic students and award scholarship dollars in significant ways and begin to build a more robust student population that enabled our College of Engineering, one, to begin to grow, and secondly, begin to see increased successes in larger populations of students enrolling in our College of Engineering. And from that investment of those two big decisions, the corporate gifts and the major decisions to begin to ensure that we were attracting students who had stronger math skills and science skills to North Carolina ENT to study engineering, that investment and tough decisions about our future allowed our College of Engineering to begin to grow much more aggressively. Positioning the College of Engineering to over the next five years from that point to begin to see larger populations of students enrolled and degrees granted uh, set in the context for ANT becoming the largest producer of African-American engineers in the country because of those major decisions that we made. And as a consequence, those corporate gifts began to grow and expand. Our enrollment continued to grow uh, in significant ways. Now, returning, Chris, to your question about the role HBCUs play. Majority institutions are not going to graduate all of the engineers in general to meet our nation's needs, and they are not by no means going to be able to graduate the number of minority engineers, be they Hispanic, Latinx, uh, Asian, or Native American, or certainly African American. And it was my perspective, and certainly our university's perspective, that North Carolina ENT, along with other HBCUs, must stand up and be much more engaged in the conversations in graduating more African-American engineers to meet the growing needs of diverse technical workforce that our corporate entities in America so critically need from our universities. And you begin, you, you begin to start seeing that occurring uh, among those existing engineering programs at that time. And you've seen over the last 20 years an increasing number of HBCUs who've begun engineering programs and are now contributing to producing more African-Americans with engineering degrees in our nation. You know, one of the things that I don't think people fully appreciate is if you look at rates of economic mobility, so the economic quintile that a student is entering into university with, and then 
five to 10 to 15 years out from when they graduate from that university, that HBCUs across the board tend to have the highest degree of impact in terms of economic mobility. So that when students are coming in, they have significant economic mobility up coming out of HBCUs more so than other universities across the country. And it leads me to the question of, you look at that clear return on investment for our country, yet HBCUs have not always seen the type of love that they should get in terms of subsidy and support to be able to continue on that mission and be able to grow uh, the kind of robust programs that North Carolina A&T has. So how would you have us think about that? Uh, what is required to be able to help strengthen HBCUs so they can do more of the good work that you've just laid out? Well, so, so let me build on your, your comments, Christopher. The historically black colleges and universities and minority serving institutions, but in particular HBCUs, have a history of taking bright students. And by virtue of uh, admitting such a large population of African-American students, most of whom come from low-income, low-wealth communities. And so they come in as Pell-eligible students in many, many ways. And so educating this incredibly bright group of students transforms their future trajectory. I'm one of those students who came in as a low-income kid needing financial aid to and scholarship support to complete my education, but gaining a college education has made all the difference in my life and that of many graduates of HBCUs in general. Now, we must continue to do that, but we also must continue to tell our story. And I, I add that point in particular because many corporate entities who have hired our graduates and our graduates have thrived within those organizations. And I said this uh, very recently and continue to say this to many of our corporate partners today. You have assumed that those African-American graduates who are doing exceedingly well in your organizations have had to have received their education from one of these PWIs because there's no way this talent is coming from your university. And so we've challenged our corporate partners to go and look at their own human resource databases and recognize where your graduates are coming from. What you have you've done is miscoded graduates of our university at North Carolina A&T is North Carolina State. You left the A&T part out. And so many of our succeeding graduates who've done exceedingly well were coded as NC State graduates. We've been clear about correcting those behaviors and making it very clear in our relationships with those corporate entities. In the same way you've invested in those universities, NC State, Virginia Tech, Georgia, I'm not suggesting you stop investing in those, but you have to make the same investments over decades in the same way you've done in those institutions that support faculty development, scholarship support, curriculum development, and research support that enhances the excellence of our university in the very same way you've been doing for the last 60 or 70 years with those majority institutions. We are seeing those gifts beginning to occur. And we have to unapologetically push that narrative in our conversation with our corporate partners. And unfortunately, it took the protests following the George Floyd murder, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery's unfortunate deaths to bring to the forefront this whole social justice conversation. 
and the inequities in our institutions relative to funding and support. And you're beginning to see some of that being made up today in much more significant ways. Now, we have to deliver. Uh, I drive that conversation with our board of trustees, with the president of the university system and the board of governors for the university system and our own faculty and staff. Every time I have a chance to have those conversations, we as a university must deliver. And that means our graduates must be challenged in most infectious ways, uh, quite honestly. Uh, and we must ensure that we're providing for them the best faculty and staff and facilities and experiences. They'll get anywhere. And we have to ensure doubly hard that we are creating that ecosystem that ensures that we're demanding the best of our graduates. And we're seeing the evidence of that in every possible key indicator that we've put in place and every measure we put in place for our graduates who are going off into the world of work or whether they're going into graduate and professional schools around America. Let's take a break. Today's episode is brought to you by SHRM. Our partners at SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, have created better workplaces by supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the world of work and society. It's why they developed the Together Forward at Work initiative to drive racial inequity out of the workplace. It's why SHRM made a capital commitment to support minority-owned business enterprises. And it's why they are partnering with us at Moving the Needle to support the call for inclusive economic development opportunities. Together, we can help workers realize their full potential in their work and in every aspect of their lives. So you can learn more at SHRM.org. That's S-H-R-M.org. Okay, back to the show. Let's get back to moving the needle. You know, uh, Chancellor, I am particularly interested, having observed your leadership and how you talk about the institution and more broadly HBCUs. So much of the advocacy around our institutions are their national treasures. Of course, they're national treasures, but language is important. We don't go to our 401k or strategic advisor and say, preserve our money. We say, grow our money, right? And those are assets. And I hear less dialogue at the national level about the institutions being a uniquely American asset born of a uniquely American spirit where the needs of the nation just might be, and not a way since Reconstruction, aligns with the needs of the nation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, can I actually want to build on that? Because I think that's an, uh, it's a great point to be able to recognize that it's an asset as well as a treasure, that that gets yes. to the return on investment piece. Right. So that there to your point earlier, Chancellor Martin, it's the idea of being able to look at the indicators like, OK, this type of investment into our HBCUs has already demonstrated because of the economic mobility, as well as the economic output coming out of HBCUs to be a huge return on investment for our country. 
which then lends itself to the idea of invest in the assets that we have and be able to put more into it. So Chancellor Martin, to your point earlier, you're starting, you're starting to see some of that. What does that look like and where do we need to go from here? And how do we sustain that energy? One of my major concerns is that uh, in the tragic wake of George Floyd and others, that we're, we may ultimately have that fade and go back to the status quo, as opposed to build on the focus on equity and justice, but importantly, inclusive competitiveness. So talk, talk to us about where, where this could go, should go. How do we how do we maintain this energy? Absolutely, absolutely superb question. We have those discussions regularly with our board and certainly with our leadership team here as well. So, so let me let me back up and take a run and start at this by first suggesting that we are a land grant institution, a very proud land grant institution. If you look across land grant institutions in America and read the legislation of the first Moral Act and the second Moral Act. They were created as the people's colleges, as Lincoln said uh, back during the time when he signed the original First Moral Act of 1862. They were created to provide educational opportunities for the citizens of America in degree areas, degree program areas, that were critical to our nation's future. Mechanical arts, agriculture, and science, but not at the expense of leaving out the classical arts and the like. So it was a broad array of critical areas to our nation's uh, prosperity as an industrialized nation and the like. And so what we have done is going back to our land-grant mission in very strategic ways and realigned and refreshed and elevated our role as a critical land-grant institution. And every constituent of our university knows and values that we are a land-grant institution and we have a critical role to play through our educational programs across all of our colleges and through our research and its innovation in improving the quality of life of uh, individuals in our society. Whether it be our teacher education programs and improving K-12, our health sciences college in enhancing graduates and research and policy and health sciences and, and, and addressing the disparities in quality of health care, uh, these college of business and the role they play in helping to stand up graduates in business and entrepreneurship and the like and building wealth in our communities through to our College of Engineering and our College of Agriculture. All of our colleges play a role in delivering on our land-grant mission. One big aspect of land-grant institutions is that they are big STEM. Unapologetically, they're big STEM. Virginia Tech, NC State, Cornell, Stanford, you name it, Purdue, they're big STEM institutions driving research and innovation and are critical assets, not only to the state's economic strategy to grow jobs, retain jobs, and the like, uh, but also addressing global job opportunities. And if you take a look at trends in America and trends across the world, jobs in STEM are growing at a much faster rate than almost any other sector. 
uh, 60, 70% of all new jobs are in the STEM discipline. And so connecting our university to all of those areas of needs of our state and our region have been tremendous for our university. And so as a consequence, we not only are bold and bullish, if you will, on the land grant mission of our university, big STEM, but we're also a critical to our College of Education and its role in helping to address disparities of black youth and brown youth not doing well in K-12. Or our College of Health Sciences, the Harrison College of Health Sciences on our campus in producing more healthcare professionals and driving policy, the role we play. And that's what's driving our university's growth and visibility and as a critical asset to North Carolina. Every political leader in North Carolina, from our governor to our secretaries of commerce and transportation and his members of his cabinet, our state legislature and the UNC system and our constituents recognize our university as a critical asset in attracting jobs, growing jobs, retaining industries in North Carolina. You may have read very recently that North Carolina was the number one state in America to do business with and job growth. And we are a critical part of those universities in North Carolina who are contributing to that success for our state as well. Now, adding value, return on investment uh, are clear indicators uh, of the continued cases we can make with our political leaders in funding our university, expanding our academic program areas of opportunity and investing significantly in the infrastructure that continues to grow our university well into the future. That's the driving state appropriations, that's driving federal appropriations, that's driving corporate alumni and foundation gifts to our university, that's driving our endowment growth in substantial ways. Now, assuming there is some modest decline in aspirational support as a result of the social consciousness of America today, we are positioned in our university to be able to sustain our trajectory because of the diversification of our resources and the leadership and framework we're creating for the ecosystem that sustains our university well into the future. Chancellor Martin's comments are music to my ears. We are 100% aligned on those aspirations, and I've seen him in action and, and so glad he's joined our podcast. To your comment, Christopher, and, and to you as well, Chancellor, maybe an opportunity to put an even finer point. No doubt we believe in the moral imperative of equity in terms of fairness and inclusion and so forth. But the nation, in a global context, is facing a competitor that we've never seen before, one that can put astronomical numbers of talented people in play with endless human resources, and they're coming. We're at a point in our national history where we need all hands on deck. How do we get the HBCU represented in more 
more more explicitly in the national competitiveness dialogue indispensable to improving U.S. productivity, maintaining global leadership. We should be in that discussion and not relegated to other discussions. Well, I think it's critically important for us to be, you know, I, I, I sometimes hate the phrase be at the table, but it resonates in my response to your, your question. We really have to be involved and engaged in the conversations through our professional organizations where we are members and not simply sit quietly now that we are at the table, but we need to be involved in setting the agenda and framing the resources that support the agenda. Because the agenda, if we're not sharing our voices, will be an agenda that excludes us as it has always excluded our universities. And so we really clearly must ask the tough questions be committed to attending the meetings and joining the organizations and shaping the agenda and driving the policy. But we also must be clear in sharing our perspectives with our congressional leaders as well, as well as our state legislative representatives as well, because we oftentimes forget that politics plays a big part in setting the agenda, defining budgetary priorities. Uh, allocating funds. We've seen a significant amount of federal funding support being framed through the CHIPS bill, the Built Back Better bill, the infrastructure bill, the clean uh, energy climate bill. We have to understand what that means to our institutions. And we have to be preparing to ensure that we are seeking a portion of those funds to be a part of the work that we're doing on our respective campuses. The day of entitlement funds are past. Entitlement funds are only gonna get you a certain place. And entitlement funds build a culture that does not drive competition and competitiveness. And so we are very cautious of how we use those entitlement dollars we currently receive and have been receiving for many years, and how we use those as investments on our campus as opposed to dispersing them as entitlements. And we have to ensure that all of our university leaders and our boards of trustees of our historical black colleges and universities are similarly framing conversations where we have an active voice at the table and are unapologetically demanding conversation and policy and strategies that are inclusive of our institutions as well. Yeah, and I to go right back to, to Jonathan's point about this being a national security imperative and a national competitive imperative, there is no other way. And to your point, Chancellor Martin, in terms of investment, I'll give you another example of this. National Science Foundation just released their engines competition specifically focused on being able to build a pipeline of diverse STEM leadership. HBCUs are a critical piece of that. But on that point, and something that you talked about earlier, investing in our K-12 system and thinking about being able to create that funnel, that pipeline of talent that you can then bring in and being able to accelerate. How do we think about that? We continue to underinvest in our K-12 
STEM pipeline, particularly in traditionally underinvested, underconnected communities of color. And can you also comment? You mentioned the importance of Black teachers in your life. I've had that experience as well. And that's at a critical moment in our national history as well. So if you could blend those together, we I will absolutely focus my comments in that space uh, because I have that direct conversation with my own dean of our College of Education, uh, with my provost on these specific topics. What the heck are we doing? I don't use the word heck. Where are we in policy and innovation? What's the return on the additional resources we provided for new faculty positions and et cetera, et cetera? Because we have to do our part. We can't be the largest HBCU in the nation and have minimal impact on producing critical teachers and healthcare providers and other professionals in areas where there is huge national need, uh, quite honestly. And so we have to do our part. Now, K-12 has to include our universities as part of the conversation. We can't ask for permission to be involved. We have to boldly attend Board of Education meetings. We have to spend time engaging with the superintendent and their leadership teams and framing the roles we will play. And we have been clear with our school systems in our region, especially right here in Guilford County, where our university is located, uh, where we have recognized that we draw a high population of students from our local school systems, uh, and in particular the school system in the county where we're located. They need our help. They need more teachers, more male teachers, and particularly African-American male teachers, they need more STEM teachers. And if they're saying that they need these critical professionals from our university, and we don't see the evidence that we're changing the needle, no pun intended, then we are doing something wrong. We have to be out shaking the bushes, deploying resources, recruiting young men who want to be teachers, recruiting uh, more people who want to enter our College of Education to become outstanding teachers in our school system. We also have to ensure that we are investing in highly regarded, well-respected professors in our College of Education who are bringing that innovation to help stimulate young people's interest in being successful teachers. But we've also done something more. Uh, we have two high schools on our campus. Uh, one is an all-male high school because young men in our local school district, especially African-American males, were dropping out at a much faster rate and failing high school in a much more substantial rate. In every measure, they were performing in the lowest bracket uh, of achievement. That high school has now been on our campus for now 14 years. The last uh, nine of those years, we've had a 100% graduation rate for the uh, young men who are transitioning through this high school. And not only are they graduating, the weight to get into the school is significant. The other thing that we found was critically important was that we did not have as robust a STEM preparation of graduates from our local school system to produce a large number of graduates who showed an interest in engineering and STEM-related professions. So in partnership with our local school system, we created a STEM high school 
on our campus as well. So we now have two high schools of about 550, 600 high school students all over our campus associated with these two high schools who are taking courses for their high school diplomas, but they also are taking college credits in addition to the high school diplomas and are graduating with uh, anywhere between 30 credits to 60 credits uh, when they finish their high school diploma. So they're going off to college much more highly prepared than they would have if they remained in the school system. Beginning this fall, we will open an elementary school, third, fourth, and fifth grade, called a laboratory school. Again, focused on STEAM, because we know we need to begin these young people at an earlier age, excited about math and science and learning and all other academic requirements for these young students to be successful. And we are identifying within this laboratory school children and their families whose children have not done well heretofore. And we're excited about the overwhelming interest in this school uh, as we are ready to launch it this fall. And so we're excited about the things we have some control over and we can influence. And in my mind is exactly what we should be doing as a land-grant institution, as a doctoral research university, as a major asset to this community, uh, to this region and the state uh, and beyond. And so those are some of the key things that we are by example doing and we're sharing as often as we can with other HBCU leaders who are interested in coming and being a part of our discussion and sharing some of the successes of the investments we're making. Well, that's, I think, one of the you know core reasons we wanted to try to help to amplify this message in the fact that you are truly creating a national model. And I would also say that not only are you able to stimulate that in terms of this innovation campus and thinking about the K-12 side, but one of the other things I've really loved seeing in the context of what North Carolina A&T is doing in the, in the context of Guilford County, you mentioned this earlier, is to be able to really contribute to the broader innovation ecosystem and really thinking about how to create an equitable innovation ecosystem in the context of uh, Guilford County. And can you just speak briefly, because we're running short on time here, to the idea of how we can help to retain that talent, stimulate the local entrepreneurial economy, to help to grow this engine that we're talking about? North Carolina, I grew up in North Carolina, big textile, tobacco, furniture, jobs for a century and a half. We had great manufacturing jobs. Hundreds of thousands of those jobs started going away in the 80s and 90s offshore. We lost them forever. And we needed to begin to rebuild a new economy for North Carolina. Education, research, and innovation are critical to ensuring that we are retaining those innovative companies in North Carolina. But more importantly, we are attractive to those large global companies who are looking to expand to other parts of the world as well. And additionally, because of the excellence of the universities in the UNC system and our private universities, there has been a significant amount invested in research and graduate education and innovation. We have joined that group of research universities as a doctoral research two university and third in the UNC system in research funding. 
while I can say all of that with great glee, what's more important to me is what are we doing with those research dollars? Are we creating innovation? And is that innovation patentable? And are the ideas commercializable? And if they are, we should be patenting the technology, selling it or commercializing it, and we're doing both. And I think we have to continue to join the group of universities in America as research universities, and in particular as an HBCU, demonstrating the successes of how this is done and done well. And as a result of our continuing progress and success, we are seeing industries wanting to partner with our university, industries wanting to come to North Carolina because of the very competitive, diverse workforce that's available to them if they elect to move to North Carolina. We are a major driver of the diverse part of that technical workforce adding value, adding return on investment, but equally as importantly, those industries who were moving to North Carolina were traditionally moving to the Charlotte community or the Raleigh-Durham community. We're now beginning to see those corporate entities expanding into Guilford County, Greensboro, and in particular around our university. That says significant amounts about the return on the importance of our university and the incredibly bright future for our university as well. Now, let me be clear as I continue to remind our board, the president of the university system and the board of governors and our legislature, the excellence we're creating is not cheap. So we have to continue to make big investments across state, federal and private dollars in our university to not only sustain what we're doing, but continue to grow uh, that excellence for our university as well. The evidence is very clear about the impact on job creation, job retention, and job growth uh, in North Carolina in general, in the Piedmont Triad region around our university in particular. You know, Chancellor, before we go to a lighter moment to close out, a suggestion for your reflection. That STEAM school. You know, that A is generally for art, but what you just described in the role of the institution, that A is also about application. And what makes STEM useful in the world? It's the application of these, this research, the commercialization of research. So two cents of encouragement to perhaps expand the aperture of that A to include the application of STEM as well. I don't disagree. I, I, I want to make a comment there, come back to A, though, in the, in the traditional mm -hmm. sense it's been applied. One of the biggest investments we've made as a university, not only in our people, faculty, staff, and students administrative team, but really in our students. We have made huge investments, scholarship programs, experiences, speakers, who engage our students, uh, entrepreneurship initiatives, culturally transitioning our students to a very different space to learn and engage and grow. But we've made huge investments in some of the very best technology in the world, in our educational laboratories, in our research facilities. Uh, we want our students to experience hands-on applications of those software tools, that technology 
and growing and applying and learning uh, while there are students on that campus. So that when they leave our university with the theory, they'll also have the practical applications that they've already experienced on our campus. So that when they go out into the world of work, they can take leadership roles in team group and teams where they are employed to drive technology, drive innovation, drive design uh, in the organizations where they are. That big investment in the technology in our educational laboratories from robotics to drones, to software tools and developments to laboratories where students can build out prototypes to 3D printing, you name the tools, the students have access to them with well-trained professionals to educate them on how to use them as well. That's critically important. It is just a quick uh, note out to all of our listeners. Check out what North Carolina Ant is doing. You can see it on their website. You can see it directly, what's happening in the campus. It is one of the most exciting innovation campuses and spaces that I've seen nationally. Uh, and I think it's only going to get more exciting with now that Toyota's building their battery plant just down the road, you've got Boom Sonic coming in and building the next generation of Jet. The ability to be able to create not only the entrepreneurs and innovators who are going to be in that supply chain for those kinds of companies, but also the talent that's going in and how that's going to create that type of virtuous cycle. We don't have enough time to dig too deep into that, but I think that's an opportunity to go and check it out because it is remarkable what's happening and I think really is the national model. Jonathan, I'm going to turn it over to you to wrap us up. Very good. Well, Chancellor Martin, a couple of questions, more personal in nature. What are you listening to? What are you reading? And just for old time's sake, give me some of the best of what you grew up with that still stays with you. <laughs> Your go-to old eight track. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, don't, don't talk about 8-Track because that's what I had, buddy. Like everybody else, I had 8-Track in my, in my old beat-up car and, uh, and had some of the best of what I call oldies but goodies. R&B, all smooth, absolutely. From Aretha Franklin to The Temptations. You know, uh, my wife and I can be driving somewhere, which I love to do. We uh, take off to the coast together and and uh, we listen to Sirius Radio. Soul Town is our favorite station, so did you know. And they have a hit on a whole litany of R&B. And it's amazing how we can chime in with the lyrics like it was just yesterday. And we try to figure, how do we know this? Because we've listened to these songs over the last 50, 60 years. And it's been incredible uh, that we, we do so. Now, I still love uh, R&B. I'm, I'm moving more and more towards softer R&B, but my favorite music today is smooth jazz and um, Coltrane and others are key um, part of the collection that I have. And how about and how about, and how about what you're reading? Anything you're reading that's uh, stimulating the the brain cells? You, you know, it's it's amazing you ask that question. So I, I've got uh, on my nightstand both Barack Obama's and Michelle Obama's uh, autobiographies. I have moved into about, I guess I'm about uh, halfway in both. I read so much. I get piled on with tons of, uh, of uh, materials to read. Uh, I just received uh, just the other day an excellent book that I've just started so that you know. 
the untold story of how we succeed from nothing uh, by John O'Brien. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen it. Just got a copy of it. I just started reading it. I love it. Um, I need to write him a note and tell him how much I've appreciated getting a copy of it. But I get books like this all the time. And so I tend to be in that leadership space. Probably my very best book there are two, but one is From Good to Great. Uh, it is one of my favorites because it is the drive uh, that I have in pushing our university. <laughs> I, I joke with our leadership team. I said, uh, I know I'm demanding, overly so, uh, but I think that's, uh, but I do so with a very inclusive leadership team that uh, is overly enthused and excited about the work we're doing. The other is, which is surprisingly, is a, is a small paperback, uh, Who Moved My Cheese? Mm, uh, I, I read it some time ago. One of the things I have found to be very true is change is significantly difficult for a lot of people. And one of the things that's clear about our university has been change. We have changed so dramatically from who our peers are, what our KPIs are, to what our aspirations are for the future. And we always talk about putting out in front of us the carrot that drives us to be the best we can be. And every two to three years, we'll take on a major new carrot that drives us to be the best we can be. Our current carrot, if you will, is moving our university to research one. And, and that's a big deal. That takes on a whole new meaning, aligning our board and the president of the university system, the board of governors, the legislature, and our corporate partners with this as an agenda. Needless to say, our internal stakeholders, our faculty and staff and the like. And we've had conversations with every one of those constituents as part of the conversation around driving our university uh, to continue to be the best we can be. And so who moved my cheese becomes very important in that discussion because you're constantly moving the needle to a very different level of conversation. Uh, anything less than that, you are becoming complacent in my mind. And so we have to continue to be looking toward how we sustain our growth and trajectory for the future of our institution. Mm. Very well said. You know, um, you're the embodiment of a level five leader, Chancellor Martin, straight from good to great in the journey. It's not destinations, but journeys all along the way. You never truly arrive. Uh, just great words to live by very well. Christopher, take us home. I just wanted to echo my thanks here, Chancellor Martin. This has been a fabulous conversation. And again, I think the key takeaway for me is that we need to continue to invest. This is a APCU's North Carolina A&T are unbelievable assets for our country. And as we think about our competitive future, we need to continue to invest in the assets that you're leading and others are leading. So thank you for taking the time today. We'll look forward to continuing the conversation forward. And I hope people really do have a chance to come see your work in action because it really is, I think, a national model for what's possible. So that was Chancellor Harold Martin from North Carolina A&T, Go Aggies, which you can find at ncat.edu. Thanks so much for listening to Moving the Needle. If what you heard resonates with your mission, do something about it. Leaving a rating and review and sharing our show with your network is greatly appreciated. 
But what we really want is for you to get involved and find a way to move the needle in your community. Moving the Needle is hosted by me, Jonathan Hollifield, and Christopher Gergen. Editing and production by Earfluence. Music from Bart Matthews and cover art from Devin Lewis Designs. We are also particularly grateful for our sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Society for Human Resource Management, or SHRM. We hope each episode introduces you to leading edge change makers, informs you about what's possible, and inspires you to action. So get out there and do some needle moving shit. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, we have a couple of books for you. The first one is written by me, Jonathan Hollifield, called The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, How Demographic Trends and Innovation Can Create Economic Prosperity for All Americans. In this book, I answer the question, can America win its economic future? The answer is an emphatic yes but I have concerns. Our nation is facing unprecedented global economic challenges. Although the economic narrative of the 20th century in many ways served America well, it will not, indeed it cannot, meet the needs of the 21st century. Today, we need all hands on deck, particularly those who have not competed well in our nation's best opportunities. Blacks, Latinos, rural humans, and others. In this book, I lay out an exciting way forward for America to inclusively compete to win the future. That's the future economy and inclusive competitiveness, which you can find on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions. And I can tell you that Jonathan's book really is a great read and provides meaningful insights into the issues we all care about. And while we're at it, you may also really enjoy a book that I, Christopher Gergen, co-authored with Greg Vanerick called Life Entrepreneurs. Life Entrepreneurs, as you may find out, is a clarion call for those who are interested in integrating their lives and work with purpose and passion. In the book, we tell stories of people who have infused their life and work with energy, impact, and fulfillment. In writing Life Entrepreneurs, we had deep conversations with 55 life entrepreneurs who have intentionally and creatively designed their lives to be able to create truly extraordinary impact in the world and deeply fulfilling lives for themselves. We had a great time writing this book, and its lessons have impacted every aspect of my own life and the thousands of readers who have checked it out. So you can check out Life Entrepreneurs for yourself on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions.